0: So ladies and gentlemen, welcome. Uh, this is Varun, and I'm here with Neha. Uh, we're both uh, journal uh, Chests social media editors and we're excited every month to bring you a article that we do journal club on. And the idea is to learn the art behind the science and then uh, consider how this changes what we know and how it can change our clinical practice. Uh, today we are talking about alpha one deficiency in direct to consumer tests, right? People who get direct to consumer tests and then they get genetic reports from it. So our authors today, who are representing the uh, author panel, it's uh, Dr. Stoller and Dr. Ashenhurst. So starting off, uh, me, I'm a pompadour uh, guy out here in Syracuse, uh, and I love working with my uh, fellows and residents. So education is something that I absolutely I'm interested in. And that's why I do this. Neha, you want to talk about yourself?
1: Sure. I'm an assistant professor of neurology, neurosurgery, neurointensivist at Mount Sinai, New York. I'm a health services researcher and just about scratching the surface of implementation science. Happy to be here.
0: Awesome. And both of us do not have any uh, conflicts. Uh, so we're going to introduce our authors and then our content liaison, Dr. Now, So Dr. Ashner, do you want to introduce yourself in... Um,
2: Tell us about your conflicts. Sure. Uh, James Ashenhurst uh, here in sunny San Francisco. It's a beautiful day today, although chilly. Uh, My background is actually in, uh, I have a PhD in neuroscience, where I mostly studied um, addiction and and behavior neuroscience. Uh, And then after a postdoc, I started work at 23andMe about um, five years ago, where I'm a scientist who leads uh, the development of many of the direct-to-consumer reports, one of which is the subject of today's talk. Um, And I am an employee and shareholder of 23andMe, so that's my disclosure of conflicts there. Um, I'm very excited to share and talk more about this article.
0: Awesome.
3: Dr. Stoller? Well, good good afternoon, everyone. Uh, My name is Jamie Stoller. I'm a pulmonary critical care doc at the Cleveland Clinic, and I serve as professor and chair of our Education Institute as well. I've had a longstanding interest in Alpha-1 at the trips and deficiencies, serve on the board of directors of the Alpha-1 Foundation. Uh, and have had a long-standing interest in Alpha One, going back to being the co-principal investigator of the NHLBI registry, uh, which goes back now many years. Um, and I have a number of conflicts with regard to Alpha One, um, including having been uh, having served as a paid consultant at 23andMe on this particular uh, on this particular body of work. So I'm delighted to be with you today, and hand it back to you, Vera, please. Awesome.
0: Thank you for coming there. Dr. Menino, uh, you want to tell us a little bit about yourself?
4: Yes, uh, my name is Dave Menino. I'm a pulmonary physician. I'm a uh, professor at the University of Kentucky, although I work part-time now. I'm also the uh, medical director of the COPD uh, Foundation. I was uh, on the editorial board that, uh, uh, that accepted this paper in the chest. And, uh, and and also, uh, like Dr. Stoller, I've, uh, although I'm not currently serving on the, uh, the Alpha-1 board for, you know, for years, I've, uh, I've had a long standing interest in Alpha-1 and uh, in TRIPS and deficiency and actually chaired their uh, medical and scientific advisory committee for years. So continue to uh, be interested in this area.
0: Perfect, so now we have Alpha-1 powerhouses and there's some learning to do. All right, so let's get started. Dr. Ashenhurst. Um, Starting with you. So, how is the landscape right of the diagnosis of alpha-1 deficiency? How is it evolving with the advent of direct right sequencing testing?
2: I think actually that might be a better question for Dr. Stoller to answer because he's more on the front lines in the clinic.
0: I uh, uh, like volley is off the bat. Let's do it. Fair Dr. enough.
3: Uh, I'll be happy to accept the serve. Thank you, James. Um, so, I, I think the backdrop here, and and uh, my pulmonary clinician colleagues will certainly recognize this, that alpha-1, like many conditions, is heavily underrecognized. Uh, we know this from a variety of studies, not this particular study, but going back to the 80s in Sweden, when uh, Sveger and colleagues did population-based screening with 200,000 200, newborns tested and found 127 individuals, as I recall, who were ZZ deficient, Uh, And yet when when we look in every country in terms of the prevalence of diagnosed patients, it's far less than the estimated population prevalence. In the United States, it's estimated that of the 100,000 estimated Americans who have alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency, fewer than 10 to 15,000, 10 to 15% are recognized. So there's a large burden of unrecognized disease. And Uh, Many of us, uh, David and I, and many other colleagues of ours interested in Alpha One, have have really, over the years, tried to advance a number of diagnostic strategies, including publishing guidelines and so on, uh, to uh, enhance the. I'm in the middle of a
0: phone call. Just tell me what's the summary. Sorry.
3: And so uh, this particular study emerged out of, again, tremendous interest in identifying an unrecognized population with alpha-1, namely through direct-to-consumer testing. So it's one of a series of strategies and a diagnostic armamentarium, and, and as we'll discuss an important one. I'll stop there.
1: As Virin is taking another call right now, we'll, we'll, take, um, we'll just extend uh, what you said, Dr. Stola, about this gap in, in diagnosis and this unrecognized need. So in this study, as you were designing the study, what were you anticipating that you're going to find? How much of that gap will direct-to-consumer testing be able to bridge?
2: It was, it was very much an unknown because um, we knew that quite likely um, some people would arrive at the, at the PTC product knowing that they had these risk alleles and already having a diagnosis. But being something that is under-recognized, um, there, there probably were going to be plenty of people who had uh, pulmonary challenges, had COPD or other kinds of things like that, uh, and a physician maybe they didn't have known family history or something like that. So it would be a surprise for them to learn about their genotype and their uh, corresponding risk through the test. So we really wanted to see how many people um, potentially newly uh, came to understand this genetic risk and then what did they do with this information? How many of them um, went on to share this this information with an appropriate physician and then actually receive a diagnosis and start treatment or care any kind of intervention they need? And also would this initiate any kind of like uh, cascade Screening in their family would would they tell family members and would family members also get tested as a result? So that really was um, among our main kind of goals of understanding the impact of releasing this direct to consumer p- report um, to millions of people who've taken the test.
3: You know, I, I might annotate that as well. I completely agree with James. There were really five goals. One is to try to characterize the prevalence of alpha one in this population, arguably the largest single sample ever described, uh, you know, almost 200,000 individuals, number one. Number two, uh, albeit self-reported, what are the clinical features of these individuals? Number three, what was the diagnostic delay interval? We'll talk about that later, but how much time transpired between their self-reported first symptom and their first recognition of alpha-1? There's a robust literature uh, on this that antedates this study. uh, And the question is, what are the findings here? And then the fourth and fifth, as James has so nicely stated, what are the, what are the managerial implications? What are the, what are the behavioral implications of, of, of learning that you have a genetic risk factor for a condition, for COPD and, and for liver disease, if you're a ZZ? And what are the reporting behaviors? Do you tell your doctor? Do you tell your family member? Uh, and again, albeit self-reported, these were things that have been relatively poorly understood in the literature And this study provided just an amazing opportunity to at least get, as my mentor, Alvin Feinstein, would have said, to light a candle in the dark, maybe not to illuminate the issue definitively, but certainly to light a candle in the dark on these issues, yeah. Perfect, so with
0: that, let's segue into this. So you guys talked about the priorities of the study. So how did you recruit participants into the study, number one, and who did you guys exclude? Um, And then how are you left with your final sample?
2: Absolutely. So if people might not be familiar that um, 23andMe also has a very large research platform. We have um, the world's largest database of genetic and phenotypic information. And most of what we do is run GWAS and do analyses like that. So this was kind of a unique project in, in that we're looking at kind of what people are doing with the information. Uh, But within the DTC product experience itself, you can opt in to participate in research, and about 80% of people do. And then there's like a little research tab on the website that you can click on. It's kind of a nearly infinite series of surveys or individual questions that people can answer if they'd like. Then That all gets aggregated and um, can be used for various kinds of research. So this study specifically, um, we developed a survey um, to try and capture what we were interested in understanding. And it was placed in the research tab so that people could just happen upon it. But we also wanted to uh, enrich our sample with people who had an existing diagnosis of AETD. So if on another survey they had said that, yes, they have a history of that, um, they got up-targeted so we would be more likely to see it. Uh, and also people who had uh, S or Z alleles, uh, they were also up-targeted so we can enrich the sample with that. Um, and then this was also one instance where uh, we used uh, genotype-driven recruitment, where people who had not chosen to receive the health information through the product, but did opt in to um, receiving invitations to participate in research studies that might be relevant to them based on undisclosed genetic information, we also reached out to them as well to give them uh, the opportunity to participate. And they were offered um, an upgrade to the full health service if they wanted that too, as part of compensation for participation. Um so it was in the research stream for almost three years collecting data. And then we finally got to a sample that seemed we had enough uh, cases uh, to, do, dig, 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 to dig into the data. <clears throat> and so in the second bubble you see there uh, how many people actually uh, did participate in these different recruitment groups. And then finally uh, exclusions. Um, we did exclude people who were younger than 18 or who had reported that they were older than 99. Uh, some other sorts of conceptual uh, inconsistencies like saying that they are currently older or currently younger than a, a future age of diagnosis for some condition. Um, the typical kind of outlier kinds of exclusions uh, like, people want, like people who are saying they had over 20 family members tested for ATD just seems kind of unreasonable. Um, so yeah, kind of conceptual things. And then that, we arrive arrived at that final sample of nearly 200,000. Dr. Menino, now that you
0: know, um what you've heard do you you know as the content expert here do you think this enriched sample potentially would keep in mind for any reason as we go through the findings of the study or any comments on the enrichment
4: oh well, yeah I, I I had a couple of comments and, and of course I, I and, um, and and understanding that you know the purpose behind uh, this study I I, I I thought this was a reasonable uh, your know, way to get people in. Although one of the, you know, as an epidemiologist, I always hate excluding anybody. Uh, so it's, so it's always, uh, you know, I, I'd much rather like flag a person and then sort of at least, you know, you have that data. But a, a question I had for James was, uh, and and as, you know, as, uh, as Jamie had mentioned, a, a study in Sweden that sort of looked at a bunch of newborns was able to get an estimate of Prevalence of, uh, of of ZZ and, and MZ people in the population. It, was there the capacity? And granted, I, and, and I understand that's not a part of this study. But to, does twenty three andme have the capacity to to somehow get you know that estimate of? Uh, MZ and ZZ in the you know, now granted this is, one of the, this is a special population the 23andMe tested population you know, is, is that something that is you know could be doable without jumping through a bunch of regulatory hoops uh, uh, with um, you know with the idea of, of somehow replicating what was done in Sweden. Yeah, because you know, and to me that that would be fascinating. Although I'm not even sure it's you know it's doable.
2: So we um, so we do have the genotype information for the entire um, population, so we could derive estimates um, using just the genotype information uh, among consented people, Um, and we do have a, a poster that we previously published that is referenced within the paper itself, which gives a more closer unbiased estimate of the prevalence of the different genotypes within the population.
4: Um, and and uh, what was that estimate?
2: I have to look at it again. It's Do you recall? Uh,
3: not often. Uh, I can I can address though the question David. Th- this is clearly an enriched population. So right. when one looks at the Svager study that you're alluding to 200,000 then there was another study in this country uh, 108,000 newborns in Oregon. The prevalence estimates of ZZ type alpha 1 in the Swedish study was 1 in 1600 which is 0.02%. And in the American study it was about one in 5,000. So we commonly split the difference and, and imagine that the prevalence of alpha one is about one in 3,500. There are supportive estimates of those data as well. So with a prevalence of about one in 3,500, that's about 0.02, 0.02%. The prevalence in this study Uh, of ZZ individuals, 349 is about 0.2%. So that's tenfold enriched compared to the estimated population prevalence, which in the abstract was quite identical to the American estimates of prevalence, by the way, uh, in that 0.02%, roughly 1 in 3,500 was the the takeaway from um, from the abstract that we reported uh, prior to this study also from the unbiased 23 data set. So the point is that these 200,000 individuals were enriched by virtue of various selection criteria. They're curious. They, they, they you know, they have a concern. Some of them had antecedent diagnoses of alpha-1 and all of that uh, culminates in a, a, a tenfold enrichment of the prevalence of the ZZ genotype in this population compared to a completely unbiased American population based on those population- screening studies that we both alluded to, if that makes sense. I'm.
0: Um, I, I, it's, it's amazing not story you reached at that, that conclusion with your mathematical genius. I, on the other hand, will take the benefit of being the moderator and having four screens in front of me. And the answer specifically to Dr. Menino's question is that the genotype frequency in the whole DTC database uh, for Dr. Ashenhurst is 0.3. 0.26% for ZZ and 0.129% for SZ. Uh, and I'm, I'm very sure this is very representative of general um, prevalence from previous studies. So even though enriched, if you look at the whole database out of everybody who tests, um, the, the prevalences are the same. Oh yes, oh,
3: yeah, let me let me cl- let me clarify. I'm agreeing with you. The unbiased sample from the uh, poster was 0.02%, and the prevalence here in this particular subset of that sample—that was millions of patients, by the way—in that poster right. presentation. The, right. These 200 or 195,000 patients are clearly selected on behaviors and are tenfold enriched compared to that population prevalence. I completely agree with you. I just wanted to put a fine point on that comment.
0: All right, so um, I will summarize table one for you, Dr. Ashenhurst and Dr. Stoller, just to provide context of what uh, we're studying. So, out of the 100, we're gonna say about 200,000 patients the sample size, 67% were women, um, 80% were white. So, underrepresentation of African American or Asian patients, um, in which we we've seen, and I think. It's there for all of us to know and learn about. So I just want to acknowledge that forty percent patients or uh, people had smoked at least 100 cigarettes in their lifetime, and eight percent are current smokers, and three percent reported any family history of alcohol dependence. So, keeping this construct in mind, let's let's talk about the study results. So, we can go through the major findings one by one. So, let's talk about the genotype frequencies and prevalence. Ration, uh, Dr. Ashton, do you
2: want to? Sure. So yeah, what this table is, is trying to show is uh, the different mm-hmm. kinds of diagnoses that people with the different genotypes um, have received in their life. Um, uh, so, you know, how many got, had a history of COPD diagnosis, how, how many had asthma, and how many had experienced bronchitis for more than three months. And one of the motivations behind this table, too, is to provide more information about the SZ genotype, uh, Was when we were actually putting together the content for this DTC report, there weren't that many studies that had really good estimates about what the risks are for um, SC individuals. Uh, and another thing to notice um, for the ZZ population in the cell for AATD, diagnosed by a physician, only 50% of our sample at the time of the survey had an existing diagnosis of AATD. Um, they very likely would qualify if they were tested. Um, so this, this so this 50% population uh, are the ones we really want to encourage to get this information into their, into their medical system so they can close the gap and actually start receiving the care treatment that they may need.
3: Yeah, Vera, and this speaks to the unrecognized burden and perhaps the incremental effect of direct-to-consumer testing compared to the, the large population of unrecognized patients. I'll, I'll remind uh, all of us that uh, various guidelines, uh, David and I were involved in the ATS-CRS guideline going back to 2003, and there are more recent ones published since then, that suggest that every patient, every patient with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, every patient with fixed airflow obstruction, post-bronchodilator on spirometry should undergo once in their lifetime, a serum level and in most guidelines genotype for alpha one. And so, uh, you know, this just fits into that general reminder. I can tell you that that practice, um, although guideline-based rarely translates into clinical practice. Uh, And I'll tell you at at the risk of great uh, humility uh, some years ago in CHESS, we published a, a paper, Jane, Anil Jane is the first author, I'm the senior author. We, we looked at the frequency of testing at the Cleveland Clinic, not among lung doctors, but among all doctors, for patients who had fixed airflow obstruction on PFTs, how, what prevalence using our EMR uh, were tested for alpha-1. And then we deployed uh, an EMR alert. Such that when the patient had fixed obstruction on PFTs, a big alert showed up, which was a single click to test for alpha-1. Now the prevalence, and this is based on roughly 800 sets of, of 800 patients in each group before and after. Uh, prior to the deployment of that alert, the prevalence of testing in patients who would have been eligible by guidelines for testing for alpha-1 was merely 4%. And after the deployment in my own institution, uh, that prevalence was now 15%. So it it simply reminds us how refractory we as doctors are to embracing guideline based practices. We see this in other contexts, right? Think about low stretch ventilation in in ARDS. You know, um, many have, uh, that that paper was published 20 years ago, ARDSnet, and yet even today, we see patients not ventilated with 6 mL per kilogram ideal body weight, right? And so this is yet another example of the failure to embrace guideline-based practice. Um, so I'll stop there.
1: Dr. Stole, if I may just ask you a question about general behavior, uh, behavior amongst uh Um, the frontline providers, why are we struggling to implement guidelines? What is it about our own behavior that prevents us from translating guidelines into practice?
3: Well, it's a a wonderful question, Nihat. And and others have written about this. This There's a classic paper by Cabana and JAMA as to why doctors don't embrace this. Um, It's in the 80s now. You know, some of it is a knowledge gap. Some of it is candidly arrogance. Some of it is impatience like I've tested 10 patients and didn't find one, and therefore I'm not testing anymore. We've actually studied the number needed to test in order to find a patient. Roughly 2% of patients with COPD on average would be expected, based on studies from Jack Lieberman and colleagues at the Sepulveda VA, about 2% of patients with COPD would be expected to to have ZZ type alpha-1. And yet, and so one would have to test on this number needed to treat analysis that we did years ago and published about 300 patients in order to find one, given the confidence intervals around those prevalence estimates. And so doctors characteristically will tell me I tested my first 50, didn't find one, stopped, right? Um, and there's also therapeutic nihilism. This is a paper by Groylich and colleagues that uh, folks think, gee, there's nothing to do about this genetic diagnosis. Why burden the patient with the psychological burden of knowing this? And that overlooks, of course, the obvious clinical interventions of counseling on smoking cessation, on smoking behavior, on occupational risk, because there are data cross-sectionally that Mayer and others and we've published that patients in dusty environments are more symptomatic if they have alpha-1, as would be expected, given the inflammatory burden to the lung. And recognizing that this is an autosomal co-dominant condition, so you're not only treating the patient in front of you, but conceivably his or her parents, siblings, and children who are at risk. So uh, there is a a strong impetus to to make a diagnosis, notwithstanding the fact that there is currently available therapy. And even more excitingly, uh, therapeutic interventions on the horizon that will change the landscape uh, for treatment of this condition. So there are imperatives to make the diagnosis, and yet we, we somehow don't. And, and these diagnostic delay intervals, which is a metric of that, the duration of time between first symptom and first diagnosis, is persistently high. In this study, on average, it was about, uh, well, you can, you can see it was about 10 years. Uh, but in earlier studies, uh, that number going back to the earliest study, one that we published in '95 was anywhere between five and eight years. And those numbers persist to this day. Uh, Five to eight years is the patient journey between first symptom and first diagnosis of alpha-1, which bespeaks, which is a clarion call to the pulmonary community to have heightened sensitivity to this diagnosis. I'll stop there.
0: No, that's good, Dr. because I was about to segue into the findings on diagnostic delay intervals. Uh, just for our audiences, right? the way it's being defined is not rationers. How are we defining uh, you
2: know, delay
0: control?
2: So, yes, yeah, so there are two uh, survey questions. One was about um, at what age did you first start to experience symptoms? And then this, of course, was only asked of people who had a diagnosis. And then at what age did you receive that diagnosis formally? So we could take the difference between those two and get the number. Uh, there are people who um, are detected as having ATD or having genetic risk Prior to the onset of any symptoms, maybe because uh, there's known family histories, so they actually did receive screening, and in that case, uh, their delay was scored as zero.
0: Fair enough. So, I think a few things to highlight in this table: one was the difference in the delay if if you already had a diagnosis prior from a physician uh, versus you did not. So. Yeah.
2: So, yeah, the two columns we're seeing here uh, there's the group who arrived at the uh, direct to consumer product knowing they had a diagnosis of AATD. uh, And then the column on the right uh, is the individuals who most likely learned for the first time that they carried these risk alleles, uh, took that information to a physician and received the diagnosis. So we wanted to understand, um, you know, as we can see, the, the age of first symptoms is actually a, a statistically equivalent between the two groups. But uh, for the group that was only recognized after the DTC product, um, it was actually quite a bit longer diagnostic delay. So I think it was, it ends up being like 22 years. So, for these individuals, it was a very, very long journey uh, between first experiencing some symptoms and then finally understanding the cause. Um, We don't don't have uh, the anecdotal individual level information about exactly uh, what these journeys were like, uh, but this does suggest that um, for these individuals, it was a very, very long journey.
4: And then
0: to highlight, I think this was also interesting to me is that um, the mean number of uh, Clinician contacts, four point five. Mm-hmm. This is like the data from like Dr. Stoller was saying, Dr. Manino. This is like data from sepsis, right? There's increasing awareness that even in the week or couple of weeks leading up to sepsis, you already have those vital sign abnormalities, those early indicators that we just fester on. Uh, same data with smoking cessation, right? So. There's always an opportunity. This is in line with what you were mentioning about the guideline-based uh, screening offerings, right? So clearly, there's opportunity, and this I think adds to your point. What do you think, Doctor Manino?
4: Well, I, yeah, absolutely. I think that's that's one of the frustrations, and this isn't. Um, and, and there have been other studies out there that have shown similar, you know, you know things. You know, multiple asthma diagnoses and. And, and, and the like before the and then person may have asthma in addition to having alpha 1 deficiency and and uh, obstruction related to that so um, I, but but I think you know some, sometimes you know clinicians may stop looking or may not um, uh, you, you consider what else could potentially be going on, or may may simply not be familiar, you know, for all the reasons that Doctor Stoller had mentioned. Uh, and and this is, and, and clearly, there although this is our field, if you sort of look through, you know, different parts of medicine, you can you know you find uh, analogous sort of uh, uh, you know, comparisons in, in other types of diseases, but, you know, either genetic or non genetic, where you know, it often takes multiple events to get to the correct diagnosis.
3: You know, I'll, I'll make two other points about this. First of all, Vera, uh, this diagnostic delay interval or the number of physicians seen is quite identical to studies done in the 90s, right? Uh, early on, uh, we published a paper in which we showed that, um, that 44% of the patients who were diagnosed saw at least three physicians. That's, that's almost 30 years ago. And so that number is not materially changed. We also know that diagnostic delay is associated with worsened uh, clinical status at the time of initial diagnosis, a paper that my colleague Vic Tejuani and I published in which the, the relationship between diagnostic delay and CAT score, SGRQ, and a trend towards worsened FEV1 with greater diagnostic delay. And the last point, to Neha's excellent point about why doctors don't, um, aren't better at this, some people that are better at this than doctors are actually allied health providers. Respiratory therapists, for example, are better. And, and for example, when we empower respiratory therapists at the point of care testing in the PFT lab, and they're empowered to bring to the patient's opportunity um, a chance to be tested for alpha-1, they, they actually find these patients. We, again, published studies. Uh, we've also just recently published a, a study in which we used my chart, which is the patient-facing portal in Epic in which when a, when a doctor prescribes a llama laba which is uniquely indicated for COPD, the patient gets a reminder that they could be tested uh, at home, confidentially through the Alpha-1 Foundation for Alpha-1. And in such a study, um, just recently published, uh, that was the highest prevalence of finding heterozygotes of any strategy ever reported. Um, almost 15% of those individuals were heterozygotes. So, you know, we need to be more creative in, in empowering colleagues uh, to, to embrace diagnosis uh, rather than depending on, on lung docs who are probably better at this than most, uh, or primary care docs who are very busy taking care of other issues, hypercholesterolemia, hypertension, in 12-minute visits. I have great empathy for my primary care colleagues. I can't imagine how they have time to think about alpha-1 faced with, you know, managing hemoglobin A1Cs and hypercholesterolemia. So, We just need to be better, you know, more clever about strategies to enhance diagnosis of not only alpha one, but asthma and sepsis and everything else you've talked about.
1: Such an excellent point about leveraging that team to ensure, particularly when we have diagnostic uncertainties or our clinical tools are not astute at picking up certain diagnoses using the entire village that's supporting that patient and his family, including the patient and the family in really helping us reach the diagnosis earlier. So we can really bridge that, that gap in, um, in these diagnostic delays, particularly for a disease process that has therapies on the horizon that has ways of risk factor modification, behavioral modifications, and implications for the entire family. Excellent points, Dr. Stoller. I
0: love this. I think you guys are setting me up for the, um, not ethical, but I think ideological and applicative dis- debate I want to have about screening shortly, but I want to get through the study findings first. So in that spirit, in that spirit, let's talk about um, results sharing, right? Uh, I don't know if anybody else there has done one of these tests. I haven't, but a lot of my friends have and I know the results come and there's a bunch of stuff on there, right? You may know about, you may not know about it. Now, what do you do? So what did
2: your sample patients do, Dr. Ashner? Yeah, so we uh, stratified by uh, different kind of levels of genetic risk um, into the different genotypes. And we asked questions of, of uh, people who uh, viewed the report. Uh, who, did you, who did you share this information with? And we asked about some specific um, categories of healthcare professionals, including genetic counselors, hepatologists, medical geneticists, nurse nurse practitioners, pulmonologists, primary care physicians, et cetera. We really wanted to get um, a, a 10,000 foot view of who, who are they sharing this information with? Uh, and we did find, as we would hope, that people who had uh, more genetic risk were, were more likely to share this information uh, with a medical professional. And the most common categories were the primary care physician and pulmonologists. And then um, genetic counselor, unfortunately, is one of the lowest. And one thing we know is that uh, the, the absolute number of genetic counselors in the United States is quite small compared to the potential need for interpreting this genetic information. Mm-hmm. Um but then for people who, who did not uh, have you know, the risk alleles, the MM, MS, and SS genotypes, uh, very few of them did share this information uh, with uh, the different categories of physicians. This is also what we would expect and hope that people do is not overrun the medical system um, with sharing results that are not actionable or are related to any risk. So really as the people who are identified as being at risk who are getting the appropriate, uh, doing the appropriate thing and sharing results.
0: I will point out just in the interest of time, but still 50% of the ZZ did not share it with the healthcare providers.
2: Some of that is a timing thing too. Um, We did ask one question about uh, like, how long ago did you view your report? It's because it does take time. People can't just run out the door and make an appointment tomorrow. They might wait until their next annual physical or something like that. Uh, But that's true, yeah.
0: Let's talk about continuing further. Besides healthcare providers, who else did they share the results with?
2: Yeah, so there we asked about um, different uh, relatives and who they might have shared the results with. And here we saw overall um, the the prevalence of sharing behavior was higher than with uh, engagement with the medical system, which is encouraging um, uh, that people are actually discussing AATD with their family. And as we saw with healthcare professionals, uh, people were far more likely to share this information um, if they had the the risk alleles. Um, And I think the most common category was with um, siblings. So that's good. And and hopefully uh, some of this resulted in additional uh, testing of their relatives and identification of people who also are carrying that risk.
0: And then the mean number of family members who got, who received testing themselves after mm-hmm. the results.
2: Yeah, so, so yeah, we asked that question too, and there was a, a significant effect there. So it's that uh, those with uh, the ZZ genotype were the most likely to report um, multiple f- family members tested with an average of about
0: 1.5. This shows me like patient driven, or you know, I shouldn't say, I should say human driven motivation to be mm-hmm. better, right?
3: This is a, I think this part is a of thing. their
1: health, right? That they're really trying to gain control of their own health and they can drive health changing behaviors potentially.
3: Yeah. I mean, this, this gets to the concept of an activated patient, right? Which those of us who care for patients realize these are the, 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 the ideal circumstance when the patient's well-informed and the doctor is well-informed, uh, the outcomes uh, I would argue are invariably better than when um, that relationship is asymmetric in either direction
0: let's put it that way great so this segues well into then do these people use any of this information to change health habits or to habits behaviorally do they make any changes um, do you want to talk about those results sure. <clears throat>
2: so the the content of the direct consumer report itself does highlight that um, smoking can exacerbate symptoms uh, and that uh alcohol use can also exacerbate uh, the liver problems that can also occur with this condition and so among people who reported that they were current drinkers or current smokers we then asked um, did they did they reduce their alcohol consumption did they reduce um, how much they're smoking and then we also asked a follow-up specifically um, did the content of the report itself influence your decision to do so? Um, And of course, I should mention being self-report and social desirability bias there, you know, we have to acknowledge that too as a limitation of these data. Uh, But what we do see again is a stratification by genotype where those who were told through the report content that they're at significant risk for this condition, uh, they report that they took that to heart and decreased their alcohol consumption uh, and decreased their uh, tobacco use. So that was encouraging to see.
3: Yeah, I mean, the, the usual concerns are these are self-reported data, and uh, we all of us recognize as clinicians that patients' self-reported abstinence from smoking is sometimes discordant with actual behaviors or, or urine cotinine and so on when that's been checked. So uh, uh, this also aligns with an earlier study that, uh, that our friend Charlie Strange and colleagues published uh, in, in which, they reported, uh, I think, a, a prevalence, as I remember, of about 59% self-reported decreased smoking in response to the, to the, uh, to the reported finding of alpha-1. So uh, these are certainly encouraging in terms of patient activation, but if we turn to limitations, these are, again, self-reported data. And so the actual behavioral change is yet to be known fully. Um, an opportunity for further study, yeah.
0: Fair enough. So let's talk about that. Dr. Menino, I'm going to pitch this to you while I um, check with Dr. Dandayaj if she has questions coming in. But Dr. Menino, we've heard the results of the study. We understand how the data was collected. For you, what are the top two highest yield findings that you think you know we need to focus on as former primary critical care community? And then what are the two biggest limitations that you feel we need to keep Hi, in I'm- mind
4: well, I, I think to, to repeat what uh, uh, what Jamie had, had mentioned, I think you know, information is power, and and getting information into the hands of patients that you know, then sort of results in uh, informed decision making is is good. You know, the flip side of that is you know, you know, information with um, without the context for the information can sometimes cause anxiety. In patients, particularly if they're prone to anxiety, and and and, and an analogy I'll, I'll use for that, and as I mentioned, I'm a medical director of the CUPD Foundation. So as part of my activities, I spend a lot of time looking at our social network. They has patients who are you get newly diagnosed with CUPD. and and uh, you know over the past few months, we've gotten a lot of very scared people coming on uh, saying, "I had a CT scan for something else." And it says that I have emphysema on my CAT scan. Uh, I, I've stopped smoking, but I'm 42. I have young kids, uh, and I went on the internet and says I'm going to be dead within five years. And 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 basically, I spent a lot of time walking people back from the ledge, saying, "Well, you know, yeah, you know, you know, I'm glad you stopped smoking. You've done the right thing. You know, the finding of of emphysema on a CAT scan." Can mean a lot of different things, and yeah. sometimes people have blebs or, or, or other things. And and I think this is analogous in that you now have a bit of information in in a in, in a person who is. And I and I imagine most of the participants in twenty three and me, you know, probably represent a, a you know may not be representative of the U.S. population in terms of demographics. It's probably going to be you know you know, lean towards a more educated uh, you know person. I I would guess, and I may be wrong on that, but. That, that's always what I've uh, assumed. So then, people are going to have these questions and go on the internet and start, you know, researching these things. and And if they come back as MZ or ZZ, and particularly if they've had a smoking history, may. Um, you may have some questions and anxiety associated with that so I, so I view that as being a potential downside but you could also then sort of motivate people if they're sort of you know sort of on on, on the fence and if they got 23 me with with the medical sort of you know upgrade to sort of you know, get better informed on 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 some of their you know you know, potential you know, you know factors for uh, for healthy aging you know, and this may get them there so so yeah I, I but you know information is always a two-edged sword and I think that's something that that we have to you know deal with and, and we've seen it and and, and granted, we haven't sort of addressed you know the breast cancers gene, the brick genes here but that's you know I suspect a lot of you know, medical geneticist time, you know, goes towards counseling for, you know, for that type of, of stuff, which, which I, I know occurs before uh, people get uh, you know, tested in a medical setting, but in 23andMe may, that may occur in the absence of that.
0: So this helps me set up for a question for, I suppose, Dr. Stoller, right? Uh, we we briefly mentioned this before we got on air. And I do think there's something to be said about having this conversation, but screening tests, right? One of the tenets of screening, the ethical tenets of screening is that once you go looking for something and you find it, you need to have the ability to address it in a meaningful manner. Right. That's all I feel like that's one thing I remember from my community medicine rotations in India when they were teaching us about screening. It's good. Go looking. That's great. But then you need to help people with it. You can't just say, "Okay, here you go." So this worries me a little bit, right? So you have now increased access. We're going to find information in this case, alpha one antitripsin deficiency. So who handles it, Doctor Stoller? What is our? Is it yeah. going to be primary care? Uh, how do you get access to that? Fifty percent are already not reporting to physician. So what happens with people we find, and then they? and never come in contact? What do we do?
3: How do we handle this? Well, that's a fabulous question and a key question, Viren, that you point out. Um, and again, this is not a hypothetical. Uh, uh, both David Menino and I have cited the papers by Stager in the 80s where they screened 200,000 newborns in Sweden. And Thielen and colleagues published a number of series looking at the psychological impact of that diagnosis to newborns. One of the reasons that um, rightly or wrongly, newborn screening for alpha-1 has not yet been embraced, although my personal prediction it will be with time, much like BRCA and other screens, along with CF and congenital hypothyroidism, which are part of, and phenylketonuria, which are part of standard newborn panels. Um, the question is, you know, what is the, the, the power of information? And my dear friend and colleague, Sandy Sandhouse, had a question in the chat about another unintended consequence, which is you give a patient this information and then there are potentially perverse clinical decisions that result, like treating patients with augmentation therapy when they uh, don't, uh, don't have indications, when they neither have COPD nor have at-risk genotypes, when they're a heterozygote for the S allele or even the Z allele. We know from uh, cross-sectional studies that SZ individuals who don't smoke are probably not at risk nor are EMSI individuals. And Sandy and I wrote a paper in CHEST years ago, admonishing our colleagues from from trying to prescribe very expensive augmentation therapy for patients that don't really uh, qualify for its receipt based on not having risk. So the, the question emerges really at a societal level. If we are going to implement screening, to answer your question, there is, in my view, an obligation to link that information with informed sources that can that can help the patient navigate that. And in fairness, 23andMe provides text information that, that is, is carefully vetted and tries to direct people, including linking to resources like the Alpha One Foundation and so on. One could argue that, that we need more, more active connectedness between a screening test result and, and educated providers. Could be a genetic counselor, could be a, a well-informed primary care doc, uh, certainly could be a lung doc, uh, but but even among lung doctors, there's a spectrum of understanding of alpha-1. And, and so there really is this obligation for us as a society to connect screening with informed um, decision-making uh, to help patients, because surfing on the web can be a very scary and, as David pointed out, very scary and ill-advised strategy, um, which can drive both trauma as well as perverse clinical behaviors, right? So that's where that issue is from my point of view.
2: To that I would add, there's also a a technical limitation because wouldn't it be great if uh, every healthcare system had completely interoperable electronic health records and at a push of a button, all of your results from one service could go into, into your healthcare system and be available for your physician to see. So there's technical limitations too to like making that access happen and transferring the information appropriately.
1: And James, if that wasn't uh, problematic enough, the interoperability of different kinds of electronic health records with wearables, with direct-to-consumer testing, not making that available within the body of the electronic health record, it's it becomes very, very complex. So while we want our patients and uh, their healthcare teams to be well-informed, A little bit of information can be a dangerous thing when it's put out of context and when it's fragmented through different, you know, through direct-to-consumer testing, not making it to the EHR and different EHRs not talking to each other. So I think uh, this study highlights uh, a very important thing that I that I wonder what uh, all three of you uh, will share with our viewers. What does this mean for direct-to-consumer testing moving forward? Uh, should should uh, patients and families go ahead and continue the direct-to-consumer testing, or should there be more thoughtful uh, utilization of direct-to-consumer testing, and what could that look like for our patients and families at large?
0: We could start with Dr. Menino.
4: Well, I you think know, yeah, the toothpaste is out of the... Uh, <laughs> holder on this one. It's, you know, it's happened, it's out there. Uh, and, and I think the you, know, the, you know, the question, you know, it gets back to what Jamie had said, you know, what, what do we do with it in terms of, of, um, of, of informed, of having well-informed patients and, and, and ensuring that, uh, that the best in, information for them is out there. So much what I mentioned with it now, you know, you know, everybody gets a CT scan if they go to the ER with chest pain or things. And, and there's lots of information that then sort of emanates uh, from that potentially that can, uh, you know, cause, you know, anxiety you know, additional levels of anxiety in patients if they're already prone to anxiety to begin with. So, yeah, I, I think, um, uh, you know, and, and this is out there it's uh, and, and, and like other advances in in medical technology i think we just have to adapt with it and and i think we'll see similar things you know with the information coming in from wearables that now and gosh i may have a fib yeah you know and if you know what do you do with that and uh, in my in my little blood pressure monitor, will will you know you, you say, oh, your heart might be a little irregular, even though I know I don't have AFib. But it's and you, and you start getting this sort of plethora of information, and and I think you know what we what we do with that, both as clinicians, and to to avoid that information overload, you know that we had sort of talked about uh, you know, earlier. I'm not sure that answers the question, but you know, it's, you know it's there, and it's just going to be one of the other you know, things that we as as clinicians deal with.
2: And to that, I would add, uh, it's, it's probably most likely that the, the patients that you see that are having some anxiety or misunderstanding, that's the population that is coming to you for, right. for more information. All the people who got it, who took the appropriate action, they're not coming into the office. They're doing, they're doing what they should be doing. So there is a good chunk of people who are doing that as well. Uh, but yeah, I think um, over time, I think uh, the medical community will get used to people having this sort of information. And we do have to remember that in the history of, of um, at-home testing, uh, at-home pregnancy tests were controversial back in the day. Um, pe- people were worried that women would not be able to ha- handle that information on their own, but obviously they can. Yep. So um, I, th- I think slowly society and the medical practice will change um, so that people will have more integrated care, access to this information as it as the price continues to fall, it just makes sense to have this in your medical file. Um, in other areas too, like pharmacogenetics and things like that, to really have more personalized medicine and care. So it's really about connecting the dots and uh, and helping helping meet people where they are.
3: And, and I have to say, I agree with that completely. As David said, the, the horse is out of the barn, and, and patients people are availing themselves in the millions. Um, and so uh, I don't think that we would revert to a sort of an ostrich syndrome, which is to pretend that we don't know information. What This is a clarion call to enhance the interoperability of the EMR and uh, the, the connectivity between screening and, and clinical advice. Uh, the, and we are absolutely getting better at this, by all means. We, we are slowly improving. With time, uh, there's plenty of opportunity to get yet better, without a doubt. But um, but I think this is the, the right direction on balance. Um, like any clinical intervention, we have to balance risks and benefits. And I, uh, my own view of this is that the net vector is in favor of of having information then well interpreted uh, and, and counseled. Absolutely.
0: Awesome. Dr. Dung, I just... As we're about to sort of close up, wrap up, uh, do we have any pending questions from the audience that we could address?
1: No, I think we 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 got a wonderful question already answered by Dr. Stroller. So I don't see any other pending questions in our chat or in the Q and A right now.
0: Perfect. So just to summarize, uh, to close out, you know, direct to consumer testing is going to become more commonplace. Uh, not just for alpha-1 antidepressant deficiency, but number number of disorders. Uh, Two, I think there's clear evidence that people respond to this. And like Dr. Stoller said, it's patient activation. So I think there's clearly evidence that this is helpful across different sort of spectra from awareness all the way to seeking care to finding about diagnosis. Gaps. With screening, like we discussed, obviously the system needs to catch up and build capacity, and, uh, but um, the answer cannot be let's wait while we build the capacity. I think progress is happening, and I think as a medical system, you're going to have to keep up. So I, I really thought that when we picked this article to highlight this, it's a very coming-of-age article, here we are. And that's, that was the reason for picking this up, because in my practice, what do we do? So I think maybe as a team, we can address this together with our patients and learn from this and, uh, you know, build a better future for medicine, right? Yes, absolutely. Lovely. Thank you, Dr. Menino, Dr. Ashner, Dr. Stoller, and Dr. Dungaj, as always. And you guys have a good day, okay?
4: Thank you very much. This was was fun.
0: Thanks. Thank
1: Thank
3: you so much. Flattered to be asked. Total pleasure to join you. Thank you so much.
1: Absolutely. Thank you, guys.